All right, welcome to Future Projection, everybody. How are you doing? This is episode 42. I'm Carlos Colazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. What's going on, Ben? World Baseball Classic. Yes, it very much is going on. I was up at, I think, like 5.30 this morning watching Shohei Otani match up with uh, a 19-year-old left-hander from China who was throwing 83 miles per hour, so that was kind of (laughs) fun to see uh, on the same field. Yeah, a little like Billy Madison going out on the dodgeball at a uh, recess against the kids. That's a great comp, actually. So, yeah, World ba- Baseball Classic is going on. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Before we get into it, though, I just want to reemphasize that we now have an email address. We have a few questions today from people who have sent us an email. just want to make sure I plug that really quickly so you guys know that it is available to you if you want to send any questions or comments or feedback on the show. It's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. Both Ben and I will get all of those emails. Um, So, yeah, if you have anything you want to send us, anything you want us to answer, just send that to us. It's a nice way for us to collect all of your questions, all of your feedback, and address them on the podcast. Or um, if you have any feedback about things you want to hear about the show, anything you want us to do differently, that's that's the place to send it. So just plugging that really quickly. Um, But, Ben, yeah, has it been all World Baseball Classic for you? We're a few games in. At this point in the WBC, I've only watched a little bit of that uh, Japan-China game. But we've got Pool A solidly going at this point, a couple games. Unfortunately, uh, the Cuban national team is is 0-2 at this point. That, that hurts my soul a little bit to see. But what is your what is your watch level of the WBC so far? And I guess what else are you focused on at this time of year? It really feels like we're getting close to the season getting rolling. Yeah, I think once the Dominican Republic gets going, once Venezuela starts playing USA, it's a, it, I'll get a little bit more into it. The time zone difference, especially for the games that are playing in Asia right now, are a little, a little challenging when you're when you're uh, when you're on the East Coast right now. Yeah, so far it, it's felt like it's either an 11 p.m. start or a 5 a.m. start. That can be a little bit tricky. Um, so it'll be nice when. Games start going here in the States, get a little bit better times for it. Um, but it does seem like there's a lot more interest this year in the World Baseball Classic than the last time this thing rolled around. I don't know if that's just me paying more attention to it. I don't know if there's just more interest in the event overall. It does feel like there are more star-studded lineups this year. But I guess let's get into some of the, the teams that we're expecting to be the favorites of this event. Um, overall expectations, talk about some prospects to keep an eye on um, and just how the event has has evolved and and how it might continue to evolve. But I guess getting into it, maybe it's cheating since the event has already started. So in some ways we're at an advantage, but but who do you think are the favorites for this event? Is there one clear favorite for you? Uh, And we know how the World Series works. Once you're in the playoffs, really anything can happen, but it certainly seems like the talent gap at this event is quite a bit different than what we're used to with major league baseball. Yeah. I really like the Dominican team there. Even, even without Vladimir Guerrero jr. Their lineup is just incredible, especially for given the population of the country relative to the United States or some of the other countries that are going to be among the, the favorites in the tournament, but you know, you, you have Devers, Machado, Cattell Marte, 
Willie Adames. Um, it's just top to bottom. This is just an incredible line. I mean, Julio Rodriguez, Juan Soto, um, just the the whole lineup is is stacked. And then I, I think the pitching at some times has been an issue, but I mean, you have Sandy Alcantara at the top of your rotation. Um, you have Luis Garcia. You know, you have younger, you know, a younger up and coming guy in in Rowanzi Contreras. So. I think there it's it's a great lineup and I think the pitching this year is maybe a step up from what it's been in the past so I think obviously look like you know USA and in Japan would be my other you know in my top 3 but if I had to bet on a team I'd bet on the the DR right now yeah, I think I would agree. They feel like the most well-rounded team. There's a case that they have the best overall lineup in the event, like you mentioned. I think Team USA's lineup would probably be the other team that you're looking at, just in terms of on paper, which which offense looks the most fearsome. But the pitching, I think, is probably the separator, and I imagine that's why we have them ranked. Kyle uh, Glazer did a ranking of the top teams in, or he ranked all the teams in the World Baseball Classic, I suppose. And it was the Dominican Republic at one, Japan at two, the United States at three. You can check out the full ranking there and a bunch of information for all of these rosters at the site. Um, see potential lineups, see who's on each team. Um, we've got prospects who are, who are not affiliated with teams as well on the site. So there's a lot of stuff there to fill you in if you are still kind of coming to grips with, with the event. But it's hard to look at the infielders and outfielders on this DR team and not think that they can just outscore everyone they run into. I mean, having a trio of Julio Rodriguez, Juan Soto, and Manny Machado, that's kind of the core of your offense. And then other guys like Devers and Willie Adames and Wander Franco. It's just a loaded lineup. There's no real weak spot in the lineup. Um, it looks really, really good, and I'm just excited to actually watch them play their first game. When do they get rolling? Their pool D March 11th. So we're recording this on Thursday, March 9th. So actually, that's a noon start time. So we'll finally get some good good times um, for that. But outside of the DR, you mentioned Japan and you mentioned Team USA. How would you compare and contrast those those rosters to the DR? I, I kind of mentioned I think the DR is the most well-rounded. Uh, it, it feels like Japan may be more pitcher-heavy and the U.S. might be more hitter-heavy, but how do you view those teams? I think if, if every team, like if you could build a dream team for each country, then like if, you know, the every player on the winning team, you know, got you know, a $50 million bonus, let's say, right? So there was some huge incentive for every player to absolutely want to play in this event and the teams couldn't uh, block or maybe behind the scenes block players from <laughs> from participating, then I think the USA would have to be the favorites. And if you look at their lineup, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's Trout, Mookie Betts, um, you know, it's it's just a pretty stacked lineup, but then the pitching staff, 
I mean, you're kind of dipping into like it's definitely not the A grade starting pitchers no. from the United States. It's not even necessarily the B level guys. Like, yeah, some of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's some good arms there. Obviously, like major league caliber arms and and some good bullpen guys there I too. Think the bullpen specifically looks solid. I mean, having Devin Williams. Uh, as the standout name in that regard is impressive. But to your point, the starting pitching feels very light compared to some of these other teams. And all of the top American-born pitchers or, or players who would qualify for the American team just aren't in the event. Um, I think it makes sense for, for tournaments like this that you typically get more of the top-tier hitters than the top-tier pitchers, just, just given the injury risk and I'm sure given the increased caution that teams probably have with their pitchers. Uh, but that certainly seems like the weak point of this team, even if it still might be strong compared to most of the field. Well, and, th- and that's where, yeah, if, if every team was at full strength, if you had a true dream team, that's where the United States should have a big advantage is in their starting pitching. But you compare it to Japan, like, they're not <laughs> they have pretty much all their top guys i mean and and their top big league guys too i mean otani and uh darvish and and then they're gonna have roki sasaki too who's an electric 21 year old right-handed pitcher so where would th- you rank that that top three if you could basically get a big league bullpen of you darvish Shoei otani and roki sasaki a bullpen or no no or if I said bullpen, I, yeah. I misspoke. A starting rotation of where you're top. Like, how many big league teams right now do you think top that? That would be pretty good. I mean, <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I mean, Japan sending all their top guys. And then, you know, the, the Dominican Republic, like those, you know, every each player is different. But I generally think that there's probably more... The, the Dominican team has more like the or just there's more players from the Dominican Republic who like really want to go out and represent their country and really don't want to miss this tournament. Or if they were told by their team that they weren't allowed to go, like they're pretty pissed off whether they're going to say it publicly <laughs> or not. But a lot of the top, you know, Dominican pitchers are going to pitch in in this event, I mean, obviously, when you have a you know a Cy Young kind of guy and Sandy Alcantara leading your rotation, it's it's a you know it's better than any pitcher that you know the U.S. is going to be thrown out there, and and then you have you know Christian Javier, Luis Garcia, um, you know, and and a lot of you know pretty good certainly hard throwing bullpen arms too. So it's. It's an area where I think the U.S. should have a big advantage. Just if you look at the breakdown of major league, especially starting pitching, uh, and and the demographics of where they come from. But um, you know, I think the reality is I might even give an edge to the Dominican pitching staff over over the U.S. pitching staff. I, I probably would too. I think that's a good point. And what do you think the the reasoning is for? You mentioned how passionate those guys are about representing their country do you think that that hasn't been the case for the united states and and i guess do you see that changing 
in the future what what do you think is the re- the reason for that cuz i mean from the outside looking in it feels like that there's a lot of energy around some of these teams in their home countries that feels just extra special um from my perspective but i'm curious if you think it's just something that maybe we haven't emphasized as much here in the united states compared to a dr or a japan yeah well it's interesting cuz you do get i mean there's no you can't really pick apart the lineup for the United States. Yeah, there's right. I mean, the lineup is two top five catchers in the lineup. You've got um, a fantastic third baseman. You've got two of the best outfielders in the game in the lineup. You've got Pete Alonso. You got Paul Goldschmidt. It's just all stars littered throughout the lineup. Yeah, Turner, Trout, Betts. Yeah. I mean, like what Bobby Witt Jr. is just like a <laughs> a pinch runner on this team. Like, I mean, it's yeah, it's a it's an absolutely loaded lineup. There's probably some difference though for the position players versus the versus the pitchers from the states, where they're you know if you're a position player, you know what do you, you want to go to another spring training and uh, you know. It's pretty boring, right? Uh, or you go to the WBC and, you know, get ready for the season that way. There's probably no difference at all whatsoever in terms of injury risk for the position player, whether you're playing in, in the WBC or you're playing in spring training. Like, you know, you're still you're still out there playing baseball, but, you know, why not take this opportunity to, uh, you know, to play in the WBC once every, you know, few years at – you know, obviously it's been a little bit longer than that, but, you know, once every few years that it happens where probably a lot of the pitchers, either either the pitchers themselves or the teams are, you know, either preventing them from playing or kind of back channeling and saying, hmm, maybe it wouldn't be such a good idea if if you're, you know, getting amped up to, to pitch in, in big games in March. We want you ready for, you know, in September and in, in October. So uh, there's probably some difference there. But I, I think for the, like you were saying before, for for the Dominican team, and it, I think it's the same for Venezuela, same for Puerto Rico. There's just, you know, there's a lot of pride in representing your country and especially – for yeah especially for the dominican republic like these guys you know they're you know they're coming from you know they're all coming from the you know a population that's not that big like you can drive across the dominican republic in two three hours so um it's not often that they all get the opportunity to play together uh represent their country like you know winter ball used to be a bigger thing obviously in the Dominican Republic, it's still a big thing, but you don't have major league players for the most part playing in, in winter ball in the, in the Dominican league anymore. So this is like, you know, the one time every few years where you can get on the big stage and represent your country and you can just see the, the passion from the players and from the fan base, especially when you have the games in, in Miami, just how electric it can be so yeah i think it's a a big big thing for for those players to be able to participate in this Mm -hmm. and thinking about the pitching from the team usa's perspective it it does seem like it's a bit of a trend even with the amateur national teams here in the united states i think one of the reasons the 2017 18u national team which 
won the gold medal uh, in the U18 World Cup in Thunder Bay, Canada. What is it that now? Six years ago, they only allowed five runs in nine games, I believe. And part of that was because they did such a great job getting the best pitching prospects in the country that year to be on the team. That was pretty much an outlier year for the team to be able to do that. I don't think at the time I realized how uncommon it was just for the best pitchers in the country to actually take part on the team, uh, just because that was like my first year doing it. But looking back at that roster, you had pitchers like Mason Denneberg, who was a first rounder, JT Ginn, who was one of the better pitchers in the class, Ethan Hankins, Matthew Liberatore, Kamar Rocker, Anthony Siegler was throwing as a two-way player then, Cole Wilcox, Ryan Weathers. Those names are, are pretty much all of the top high school pitchers in the class at that point. I think um, Slade Ciccone would have been the one that maybe stands out that, that wasn't on the group uh, at the time. And you look at what they did, and then you look at the teams they've had in, in more recent years. We didn't have a Noble Meyer or a Thomas White or um, a Charlie Soto on this past year's 2022 18U national team roster. And I wonder if it, it really even goes as far back to when these kids are younger, they're being very careful about the elite pitchers, especially seem to be very careful about the innings they're throwing in any given year. And I can see that if you did that uh, as an amateur, it, it kind of trickles over to now. Like, why are you going to throw an additional high leverage game innings when you know there's such high injury risk um i kind of can understand it but it it does seem to be sort of a cultural thing that that happens with the the american pitchers even as young as 17 years old and it's partially to do with how how we do travel ball how we do the summer showcase circuit when kids are deciding to pitch how how often they pitch in their high school seasons so I, i don't really blame the pitchers for not doing it um but I guess it just makes it more special when you actually are able to get some of your elite arms to take part in something like this. Yeah, well, it's also when when those tournaments are on the calendar too, right? Like the U15 or the U18 World Cup or or the you know Pan American Championships, whatever the event is. They're typically like in in September, right? So it's after, like you said, after a long travel ball summer circuit, and you've been pitching you know, all spring, like, you know, especially the kids in Florida or Georgia or, you know, the warmer weather state's been going since February. It's like, yeah, I could go out and pitch in this tournament in September, but is that the best thing for me? Like probably not in a lot of cases. I mean, you're probably already worn down and and run down from a pretty long season probably makes more sense for them at that point just to rest and and get ready for for the next year at that point what do you think about the rationale of using the world baseball classic as almost your ramp up period um for for the big leaguers is is maybe a not so much a negative given where it falls in the schedule for them uh or do you think there's something to just being able to pitch in non-competitive games to get into that rhythm it's probably different for each player. I mean, for the position players, what's what's more beneficial for you? Are you are you better off going and facing this, you know, Dominican uh pitching staff and and facing, you know, all a team of all big league guys or would you rather go to spring training 
and get ready and, you know, face a mixture of big leaguers and a lot of guys who are going to be going to, you know, triple A, double A, even lower than that to start the season. I don't know. I don't think it really makes a big difference, but I certainly don't think that going up against uh, a whole bunch of guys who are going to be pitching in the big leagues this year is going to uh, hurt your ability to get ready for the season. Certainly if you're a position player and and if you're a pitcher, it's probably a little bit more individualized. Uh, But I, I don't know. I don't think there's, I, I haven't seen any evidence at least that there's a heightened injury risk for pitchers pitching in the WBC versus spring training guys get hurt in spring training all the time. Uh, we've seen guys get hurt in spring training. Like, you know, I, I hope Andrew Painter is all right, but like he didn't get hurt cause he was pitching in the WBC. He got hurt cause he's a pitcher and <laughs> this is what happens, yeah. especially this time of year. So, um, I don't, I don't agree that there's, um, necessarily a heightened injury risk for pitchers, even though that's probably the, maybe the conventional wisdom. Gotcha. Well, let's move on to some prospect talk. There are obviously a lot of talented players in this event. There are a lot of established big leaguers, but we like to talk prospects here and there are plenty of good ones to keep an eye on. It it feels like it would be irresponsible to start this conversation anywhere other than Roki Sasaki who, if he were a prospect in the draft this year, would be a consensus clear-cut 1-1 best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg, one of the best pitching prospects we've seen in years. How excited are you to see Roki Sasaki? And I guess how much familiarity do you have with him in general? I've watched a lot of video on him. I don't remember the first time that I started watching video on him, but basically right when we were hearing, it it actually might have been when he went, two games basically of, of perfect games and I saw clips and then I, I pulled up video of him in general and just started watching through and it's it's insane his stuff and his feel for pitching and what he's able to do on the mound so he's certainly the most exciting prospect in this event for me although I guess if we want to talk about affiliated versus unaffiliated prospects um, that could be interesting too but just thoughts on Sasaki and is he clearly the top, uh, the most exciting young player, I guess, um, in this event for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, like most of our top prospects who are in affiliated ball are either from the U.S. or Venezuela or um, or the Dominican Republic, and those guys just aren't. You're just you're just not going to be good enough to crack <laughs> a team, uh, one of those teams, as a you know, if you're Gunnar Henderson or. Uh, maybe Jackson Cherio could <laughs> could could do it for Venezuela, but even still, it's it's tough for those guys to crack a, a WBC team at this point. So yeah, I mean Sasaki is an athletic right-handed pitcher who's sitting sitting upper nineties, pretty regularly touching a hundred hundred plus miles an hour with good control of his fastball too. He has a pretty de- you know really nasty splitter and slider so he has three pitches that i mean grayed out plus if if not 
plus plus, or you can maybe throw in uh, that they probably yeah. could throw an eighty on his fastball. I too. think the, the fastball and slitter have to be at least seventies, right? I would I would think. I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel crazy throwing seventies on both those two pitches specifically. Yeah, no, I was gonna say at, at least plus with with all of them. Like maybe you go a you know plus on on the slider, but it's it's three pitches that are big big weapons for him. And he has good control, especially for, you know, somebody who's still 21 years old. I mean, like you said, he'd be the equivalent of, uh, you know, Paul Skeens or, or Chase Dolander in terms of age. And those guys are, are pretty exciting guys, too. But uh, pretty much like everything with Sasaki, other than maybe velocity compared to Skeens is and, you know, maybe you give Skeens an edge on on slider but then you know obviously sasaki's splitter is such a difference maker for him um he's yeah like you said i think if he's in if he's in the draft him dylan cruz yeah i mean more I'd be surprised i feel if, if sasaki wasn't the clear cut one one i think i i think there's probably some teams that would still look at injury risk one... with pitchers mm-hmm the one element that's interesting too is I feel like there are a lot of scouts who look at a splitter with almost a negative connotation because of, of how hard that pitch is to throw consistently, even given Sasaki's uh, proven track record throwing it. And, and I think there is some sense of throwing a splitter is more of an injury concern compared to other pitches. I know, Ben, you, you've long been very high on on players experimenting more with the splitter, especially for pitchers who maybe just don't have that natural feel to sprint, spin a breaking ball. So I'm kind of ambivalent on to whether or not having a, a great splitter is, is just a good thing because you have a good pitch or maybe a negative because you don't want your top pitching prospects to use a splitter as their primary secondary offering. That That's kind of an oxymoron, your primary secondary. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to think about him in comparison to a Paul Skeens or Chase Dolander or just comparing him to this top group of 2023 prospects because they're all similar ages. I think Sasaki is, is 21 currently. I'm not sure if he just came off his age 2021 or his age 21 season or if he's heading into it. I'll pull it up right now. Um, but it just seems like he is. So he's going into his age 21 season. Last year at, an, at in his age 20 season, he struck out 173 batters and watched 23 and 129 innings which is insane. I, I think the track record of him showing that stuff with that command, with that pitch mix, with that body, with that delivery, I feel like he would just be the number one prospect in the class, but maybe I am just discounting how, how teams would, some teams would maybe just prefer a hitter because of the injury risk associated with all pitchers. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, I would take Sasaki number one too. And I would take him over any pitching prospect in the minor leagues right now too i mean painter yuri perez grayson rodriguez like i think the biggest good arms but you could just draft him and put him in the bigs right away none of the other draftees you would be throwing into the bigs immediately i mean maybe there's a case where one of these teams who who would be picking at the top magically finds their way in postseason contention and then if you have Paul Skeens, maybe you feel okay throwing him out in a bullpen roll. We we always hear about teams saying that, but there's just not a great track record of the guys taken at the very top of the draft going to the big leagues that quickly. 
So I think the fact that he's pretty much a plug-and-play big league pitcher while also being 21 years old would probably be the separator for me. You don't, you don't think the Nationals could sneak in the in the postseason this year, Carlos? I'm not putting my money <laughs> on that. You know, I'm, I'm not a gambling man in general, but if I was, I don't think I'd be putting it on the Nationals making making the playoffs, no, unfortunately. Yeah, no, he has, I mean, I don't know how much more you can ask for from a pitcher. He, he looks every bit like of potential number one starter and this i mean the splitter thing one i just don't see evidence that the splitter is more dangerous than other pitches and the second thing is there's i think there's just long been this or not even that long because it, it used to be a more common pitch in the states but you know here in the states the kids or pitchers aren't taught to throw a splitter and it's not at all the case in somewhere like Japan or Cuba where the splitter is a, a very common pitch to throw. And if you can throw a good one, it can be a, a really nasty pitch for you uh, and a weapon against lefties or righties, like you said before, it, and it doesn't necessarily depend on your, what I think is a lot of times just an innate feel to be able to spin a breaking ball or not. And if you, you know, if you throw, if you try to throw a splitter and it just doesn't work, like you can always just scrap it, right? Like you can, you don't see a lot of 40 grade splitters in the big leagues or even in the minor leagues. Cause if it, if it's a pitch that isn't working for you, uh, you just don't throw it. Right. Cause it just turns into a, like a BP fastball almost. So, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a great, pitch and, and we're starting to see more and more guys throw it in here in the states in recent years um so the the aversion here in the united states for for a lot of people to the splitter is something i i just don't understand one of the other guys with with team japan that i wanted to talk about because i feel like he, he certainly gets overshadowed but we might see him sooner in the big leagues uh, compared to sasaki is yoshinobu Yamamoto, who Kyle had as the number two overall prospect among unaffiliated players. Um, he has been the best pitcher in the NPB the last two years. Is the basically the Japanese Cy Young Award uh, equivalent, the Sawamura so Award. Back-to-back years, career A under two. He doesn't have the exact sort of power arsenal that Sasaki has, but again, we're looking at a guy with a deep pick, pitch mix, mid-90s fastball, a splitter, shockingly, he's got a splitter that has also gotten double-plus grades. Um, and, and Kyle writes that he could be a number two or number three starter in the big league. So the fact that we've got another player of this quality with Team Japan, age 24 right now, just speaks to the the impact starting talent they have on their team. And the fact that he might be posted uh, after the 2023 season is super exciting. So he would be another one that I'm really curious to watch in this event. Yeah, that's the difference is Sasaki, like you said, he's 21 years old. Not he, He's still several years away from being in a position where he would be exempt from the international bonus pools. Now, you know, crazy things happen. We saw Otani come over when he was still subject to the bonus pools and signed for like less than... 1% of what he would have gotten on 
the open market if he had been a free agent with no no strings attached. Um, but Sasaki is going to still be several years away from um, being posted and being, you know, someone who, who we'll see in a, a major league uniform. Whereas, yeah, like you said, Yamamoto, uh, you know, could see him maybe next year even in the big league. So he's more... He's not the as exciting as Sasagi, but he's still a very good arm to watch and probably going to be more of a priority guy just for major league organizations to evaluate, not just at the WBC, but throughout the the entire year because there's going to be a decision that they're going to have to make on him sooner than with Sasaki. Yeah, those are, are definitely the two top prospects when we're talking about players who could come over to the States in the near future, but are currently unaffiliated. Like I mentioned earlier, Kyle has a post going over the top 10 prospects um, of that sort of mold. We also have a lot of affiliated prospects who are involved in the event. It feels like just looking at some of the names we have written down here, Ben, Team Canada is, is certainly a team you would want to keep your eyes on if you were a bit of a prospect junkie. But let's get into some of the affiliated prospects who we're excited to see in this tournament. A few top 100 guys, a number of players who are among the top 15 prospects with their respective organizations. Um, I'll just let you kick it off. Who are you most excited to see, whether that's a specific prospect or or a team that you think just is, is interesting from a prospect-specific standpoint? Hey, a couple guys. I mean, Sal Freelich, I know we've talked about him quite a bit before, but... Um... With Italy, somebody who I think has a chance to be, um, you know, an impactful rookie this year. So, seen a lot of him, obviously, before he's, I think he's probably the highest ranked prospect that we have playing in the WBC. I believe so. Um, he's currently, he's top one, on our top 100 list, he comes in at number 33, and he's the Brewers' number two overall prospect with a 55 medium BA grade. Yeah, so the you know the Brewers have a whole bunch of out, young outfielders to sort through with Garrett Mitchell, who's been looking pretty good in spring training, but um, Mitchell, Freelich, Joey Weimer too, and then obviously Jackson Churio coming up behind him. But Freelich is you know quick twitch athlete, plus plus runner, can play center field, very high contact bat, very little swing and miss to his game. Strikeout rate actually dipped each time he got promoted up through AAA. So good track record of performance. I think he has a skill set where um, everything except for the power uh, is is there for him offensively. And it's not like he's just a, you know, a little slap hitter either. There's occasional sneaky power, but uh, certainly more of the guy who's going to rely on his ability to put the ball in play and get on base and, and use his speed more so than being a a big time power threat or anything like that. But I think he has the skill set that is going to translate quickly uh, when he gets promoted to the big league. So, so he's one guy and then he's, he's currently leading off for, for team Italy in their six, three win over Cuba that went 10 innings. He went one for five, scored a pair of runs, singled and stole a base. So the fact that he is sitting at the top of, of that lineup, uh, which has some solid players in it is is cool and fun to see. Yeah, so he'd be one, and then you know, with Great Britain, not not a team that I'm expecting to make a, a deep run <laughs> into the 
into the tournament, but I mean, they have Harry Ford, the Mariners number one prospect catcher who, uh, you know, I don't know if catching is necessarily the long-term position for him. It might be, I don't know that it's going to matter because I think he might have the offensive upside if, you know, if he needs to go to the outfield or, or maybe third base, he could fit there too. Just a good athlete with uh, somebody who's just got a really intriguing offensive profile too. Yeah, Ford is a good one. We've got him ranked uh, right now number 64 in the top 100. Number one overall prospect for the Mariners, 55 high BA grade. And I think to your point, the the offensive reports and what he's done with the bat has been super impressive. Uh, I, I think he's definitely going to hit. I, I think, like you said, he's he's got the athleticism to play a number of different positions. It sounds like he's still making a lot of progress defensively. Uh, you know, I love those catchers who can run, and he is certainly one of those. It's weird to think of Harry Ford as being a member of this Great Britain team after watching him play in Georgia as a high schooler, uh, but his parents from Great Britain, so he's he's representing the country there. Uh, I think he'd be one of the top affiliated prospects in the event right now, and in terms of, of who you'd rather like between Ford or Bo Naylor, they're pretty close to me, and, and I think I would go next to Team Canada just because of the quantity of prospects they have. I love the fact that there are a lot of family ties with the Naylor family uh, being affiliated with Team Canada, going back to amateur days. Um, their cousin Denzel Clark, or, or Bo and Josh's cousin Denzel Clark, is on the team as well. Um, there's a ton of athleticism and speed in the outfield of this Canadian national team. Owen Casey, who's the Cubs' number 13 overall prospect. Clark, who I mentioned, who's the A's number 11 overall prospect. And then Desan Brown, who is a 70-grade runner, um, himself is the Blue Jays number 13 prospect all these three are on the team and you also have infielders like Edward Julian who is a fringe top 100 prospect entering the year I really love the offensive profile even if it's a bit unique maybe a little bit limited defensively uh, another utility type player in Otto Lopez who also ranks in the top 15 of the Blue Jays system and then Mitchell Bratt a left-handed pitcher out of the Rangers organization who showed really exciting stuff out of high school he he actually moved down to Georgia as well for his draft season so he could be seen a little bit more often the way scouts talk about his athleticism and how he moves on the mound has been really exciting so this team is just loaded with a ton of prospects if you if you could only watch one team and you cared about prospects this would probably be the team you watched right yeah i think especially Naylor is i mean like you said the depth of talent or the depth of prospects at least on Canada is, is what sticks out compared to the other teams. I mean, it's it's not the talent, obviously, of you know the DR of Venezuela, but um, in terms of just looking at young players and wanting to see prospects, uh, the depth definitely sticks out there. And, and then you have a pretty high-end player. I'd say two high-end guys in, in Bo Naylor and Julian, who you, who you mentioned too. But um, yeah, I mean, Naylor as a top 100 prospect just seemed like everything ticked up for him last year um it's you know it wasn't a you know a great 2021 for him uh and then 2022 you know was making more contact he saw power he saw some 
improvements on the defensive side too, especially with his ability to control the running game better than than he had previously. So you just saw things keep ticking up for him and another catcher who can, not that it's a big deal, but who can run too, not quite like Harry Ford, but, um, you know, some some athleticism at least behind the plate and what he showed last year too with his ability to make more contact to go with some of the the power that he does have was was pretty impressive i thought yeah i think naylor just has a really well-rounded tool set and skill set i like how he controls his own i like his approach at the plate i think he'll hit for average i think he'll hit for some power the defensive reviews ever since he got into pro ball were honestly much better than i expected for him to have um, coming out of high school, there were always some questions about, was he going to stick behind the plate? And it were, were similar questions about, well, he's such a good athlete that maybe it, it doesn't matter. We believe in the bat. The pure hitting ability was always really the selling point with Naylor. He was viewed as one of the better pure hitters in the high school class in that 2018 class. Um, so just seeing the development that he's done in, in all these other areas of his game has been encouraging to see and making the postseason roster last year uh, was, was cool as well. Even if he didn't get much playing time. I expect him to, to have an impact on this Cleveland team uh, very quickly this year. Yeah. And then, you know, some of the smaller countries like, you know, Nicaragua has Carlos Rodriguez, a right-handed pitcher in the Brewer system who, uh, you know, came up obviously through, through the draft for them. He wasn't a signing out of Nicaragua. Oh, the Brewers yeah. did sign, the last two years, they've been signing a whole bunch of, you know, you know $10,000 type guys, but pitchers from Nicaragua, which is a country that, you know, there's just not many signings. A lot of teams will not sign any players um, in a given year from Nicaragua at all. This but one the, is, This one is interesting to me because I remember covering Carlos Rodriguez in the draft, in the 2021 draft class, I believe. He was a sixth-round pick. He was a player that I, I kind of heard about later in the process. And I remember it was the stuff that really stood out at that point. I think he had touched like 97 miles per hour at some point during the spring of his senior year, even if he was mostly in the 92, 93 mile per hour range. Um, and, and I thought that it was like chance to start, but if he can't, maybe he's got kind of an, an, a chance to be a power reliever. But looking at, at the report and his development, in the prospect handbook that, that you wrote this year, Ben, it sounds like the just the pure pitching ability and the development of his changeup are really the selling points for him now. Uh, and I don't know that that's the sort of pitcher I was expecting uh, after hearing about him out of high school. Yeah, well, he stands out in that Brewer system because you have Robert Gasser and Jacob Mizorowski and not a whole lot of pitching beyond that. I mean, Abner Uribe throws really really hard i think he'll you know has a chance to be a good bullpen arm but um you know not a whole lot of not a whole lot of starting pitching prospects in the organization right now except for rodriguez who you know like you said before you know he there's i think there's a good chance he also ends up in the bullpen but for a six-round pick the success that he's had uh, has been pretty impressive so far especially with uh, a really good changeup. Yeah, that's a good one. There, there are a few other names who are interesting here. Um, Panama and Colombia both have prospects that are intriguing. Jordan Diaz, uh, second baseman and first baseman in the A's organization. 
He is number 12 overall in their system. We gave him a 45 medium overall grade. And then Ivan Herrera, a catcher in the Cardinals system, number eight overall, same overall grade, um, 45 medium. The fact that that we've got two guys in these systems who are interesting hitters uh, is encouraging. Herrera is certainly not the fleet of foot catcher that we talked about with Bo Naylor and with Harry Ford. Um, But the bat is interesting. He's got a lot of strength behind the dish. Uh, Team Israel has a few interesting prospects. And Zach Geloff, who has really done well as a hitter. Same thing with Matt Mervis, who's a first baseman in the Cubs system number four. In that system, uh, in another bat in Spencer Horowitz, who maybe isn't as highly regarded as a prospect at this point, but still in the top 20 of the uh, the Blue Jays system, excuse me, we have him number 18 overall. So a lot of intriguing hitters who maybe don't have the same sort of prospect status as guys like a Bo Naylor or a Harry Ford or even an Edward Julian, certainly not a self-relic, but who are interesting nonetheless. Um, which of those players intrigues you most, Ben, of those guys I mentioned? Or, or is there another player that I didn't mention who's, who's maybe most interesting to you at this point? Yeah, I think Mervis, Matt Mervis, the Cubs first baseman, is got to be the guy to watch, right? I mean, kind of a split camp guy, I think is fair to say with him, where I, I don't know that anybody necessarily is counting on him to be um, – you know, a, a perennial all-star or anything like that. But there, you know, some guys think eh, he's like a good triple-A hitter, maybe a 4A guy, and he ends up, you know, going to Japan, uh, you know, being like a, a Brian LaHare type. And that could end up being the outcome for him, but it seems like he just kind of kept proving his doubters wrong. Every time he got bumped up a level, he he kept performing high A, double A, triple A. Uh, I don't know. I, I think he has a chance to just turn into a, a steady league average type guy. Uh, I don't think he's going to be a, a plus everyday player, but uh, I think the there's an opportunity for him to, um, you know, hopefully just get the opportunity just just got a chance to prove himself at the major league level this year because he he does have plus power and he does have a, a pretty good approach at the plate obviously as a first baseman he's gonna have to really mash but um i think there's there's enough in there for him to uh you know be that league average regular yeah he's a fascinating one i think all the more fascinating just because he was an undrafted free agent uh, signed by Billy Swoop with the Cubs at the time. He was a solid two-way player at Duke as a first baseman and a right-handed uh, pitcher who, who came out of the bullpen. Um, and to see what he did in the minors in 2022 with South Bend, with Tennessee, with Iowa, going from high A to triple A. And granted, he was 24 to start the season. But he still produced at all of these levels, hit 14 homers in double-A, hit 15 homers in triple-A. Certainly the power, like you said, is the calling card. Uh, it's a bit tough to see a 70 on the on the scouting report and see that it's an arm for a first baseman. So I don't know how 
how much we really get excited about a massive arm for a first baseman, but it's cool that he has it. And and I'm with you. I think he could be a very solid hitter, and I'm curious to see where the hit tool settles in at the big league level over a full season just to see you know, what, what kind of a hitter really is he? How much of that power is he going to get to consistently? Um, he'll he'll definitely be a fun one to watch and, and just see who is right because I do think he is more of a polarizing player like you mentioned. Yeah, I think the a lot of the rest of the guys who are in the WBC are more like your, you know, your depth prospect, like your number 15 prospect in in a system who's not number 15 because he's, you know, young and in rookie ball and far away and has a lot of upside. It's more he's number 15 or number 20 because he's, you know, he's in double A or triple A and, you know, maybe has a chance to be a role player, but is probably not going to be the uh, the everyday type of guy. That basically sounds exactly like who Otto Lopez is, who's second base outfield shortstop for the Blue Jays. Um Makes a lot of contact, but has next to no power. So uh, that that pretty much is is a good summary of, of the sort of player that he is. So I think that's a good call. Um, but yeah, where do, where do you want to go from here, Ben? Um, we've got some questions we can get to in the future if you want. We can talk about how the the WBC has changed, and if you think there are any countries that are poised to kind of cement themselves as as national powers in the way that. Maybe Cuba seems to be doing the opposite right now, which, again, is tough for mm-hmm. me. Um, and, and my family are probably pretty bummed uh, that, that Cuba just doesn't seem to have the same oomph that they previously had and they developed a very strong reputation for. But I guess getting into to, into some nations who are maybe changing their reputations, I just wanted to ask you why you think Cuba has fallen off so significantly compared to what they were in the 2000s or even early 2010s. Yeah, well, they used to, uh, you know, they used to just build their national team from, you know, the players who were in in their home country playing in Serie Nacional, and they they used to uh, pretty much all the top Cuban players were were there, right? Like you'd have, you know, El Duque, El Duque would leave or, or something like that, but you know, Levon Hernandez would leave, but. There, there just weren't that many players who were going that route. And you had guys like Yulieski Gurriel in their prime or Frederick Cepeda uh, in his prime, Jose Abreu, Yoani Cespedes. Uh, these guys would just stay in Cuba through their prime years. And now, uh, especially, you know, you go back within the last 10 years, all of the top players have have left um you know like Cepeda never left Despagne never left but like those guys are either you know at the twilight of their careers or 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 done at this point so um you you have not just the top players having left the country but you have so many second and third and you know fourth tier guys leaving trying to sign with a major league club uh probably with a lot of them with unrealistic expectations of what opportunities would even be available for them in baseball, um, you know, at the, you know, with a major league club. And you have so many young players leaving now too, where, uh, you know, like, you know, the Yankees just signed Brandon Ayea this year out of Cuba on January 15th, one of the top international prospects. And he left Cuba when he was, 
I mean, geez, I, I like 12, 13, 14. So a lot of the players are just leaving even younger and younger, like these guys who would be up and coming stars on the Cuban national team. Uh, if this was 20 years ago, that's just not the case anymore. Now they're allowing certain players who have left Cuba to play on the national team again. It's why I see Luis Robert or Yohan Moncada playing, but, uh, you know, you don't see Jordan Alvarez or Randy Arosarena. Uh, Jose Abreu is, is not there. So, um, you know, if you put together like a true Cuban team, I think, you know, they'd, they'd be really, really good. And I think like, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I wonder what the WBC is going to look like. And there's obviously a lot of like political things that you have to predict that is, you know, beyond my uh, prediction abilities. But um, I, I think there's a chance that Cuba could go back to being uh, a stalwart on on the international stage. I think a lot of things would have to change. But, you know, if you're looking for, you know, what could what could change in the 2053 WBC, right? That that's certainly a country that is a a pretty rich source of talent uh, of baseball talent, but the production at the international tournament level has not matched the caliber of of players who come from that country. Yeah, it really just seems like it's mostly um, political reasons why why the team is not as good as it, it previously was. I know there's still a lot of uh, people who are trying to leave the country. I hear about it from my family all the time, and it, it seems like that kind of ebbs and flows over the years depending on just political things that, that I don't know nearly as much about, um, and that's unfortunate to see. Um, but who are some maybe sleepers in this year's tournament who we don't view as maybe the most likely competitive teams in this year's event who you think have a chance to increase their stock over the next few years. It, it seems like everyone is always kind of waiting for China to take the next step. They're such a massive country in terms of population and, and with how popular baseball has been in Japan, maybe there's a chance that the China could adopt baseball and develop a, a strong baseball culture as well. Um, we would certainly be at the very beginning of, of those stages. But are there any countries that you look at and you think, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, we could view them very differently than maybe we do today? In this tournament, I mean, Cuba's probably the biggest one. <clears throat> Colombia's one where I think if you just like look at the population size, certainly compared to the Dominican Republic or, you know, Venezuela, you would think Colombia would be better, but I don't know. It I've been covering international signings for, for the last 15 years or so and keep waiting for Colombia to take that next step. And, you know, there's, there's still good players who come, come out of Colombia, but it just hasn't taken that next step forward. I, I think the one country where, again, if we're talking about the 2053 WBC 30 years out from now, I'd be curious to see where the Bahamas is. Like, they're not obviously in the WBC right now, but the Bahamas is 
got to be like the biggest arrow up country right now as far as international signings um every year we're just seeing more more players and more high-end players this year was the Rangers signing sebastian wolcott uh the the marlins signing Gennaro miller a a two-way guy so it's tough because the population of the bahamas is you know so small right like it's kind of more uh you know it's less than a million people right so it's hard to it's hard for them to kind of compete on the uh international stage or just produce the volume of talent so maybe you group them with uh you know another another country but i i think if we're just looking for like a country on the rise and uh, as far as the impact at least in uh for major league teams it's it's got to be the bahamas that's interesting. I wonder why we've seen the uptick in, in signings from that country. Is there like a specific reason you can point to, or have you just noticed teams um, having more success in, in that uh, demographic? Uh, there's, you know, there's more, more training, more programs doing a good job. I think in the Bahamas of building at the youth level, at the grassroots level and, and getting kids to, to play baseball like track and field is is the you know a big sport in the bahamas and you have some some really good athletes but it's you know it's not a sport you can just kind of like pick up when you're 15 (laughs) and and figure it out uh it's definitely a a skill game and trying to ingrain those skills and those players at at a young age is really important. And I think some of the, the programs there have done a good job and, and also, you know, bringing players to, to events in the United States or, or in the Dominican Republic has, has helped those players. Cause a lot of times you're, you know, you'll have some good position players and you'll see them at tryouts or games or wherever in the Bahamas facing, you know, kids who are throwing you know, 75 miles an hour. It's kind of <laughs> tough to evaluate hitters in that environment or, or for hitters to develop too, especially compared to their peers in, you know, the Dominican Republic who are pretty regularly seeing really good, uh, really good velocity there. Nice. Any other countries that you want to mention? Uh, I was also curious to talk about if we had an American baseball classic and we pitted each state against one another, which would be the strongest, but we can also get to that if you have any other countries you think are worth mentioning. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm curious what Venezuela will do. Um, you know, let's say 20, 30 years from now, cause it's, it's already will be catching something will be covered for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any holes in a WBC roster for Venezuela behind the plate for uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, I do get the sense though; it's, it's already like a powerhouse country. Like it's got to be a top five team in in this tournament, but. I do get the sense that like, you know, there, there's still going to be like an uptick in, in, in Venezuelan baseball talent. Um, it's such a, it's such a baseball crazed country. Uh, and the, you just look at the population size too, compared to 
the Dominican Republic, it's, you know, it's a significantly larger country. I mean, it creates a lot more challenges to scout there compared to the Dominican Republic. Things a little more simpler uh, just in terms of like navigating the country compared to Venezuela. But I mean, just look at our, you know, look at our top 100 prospects right now. And obviously Jackson Churio is kind of the star of the show, but you got, you know, Francisco Alvarez, uh, you've got Gabriel Moreno, Diego Cartaya, um, you know, you, you got a whole bunch of pretty good Venezuelan players who are stacked up toward the, um, you know, toward the top of our our list. I, I could see that being another country that is already pretty strong, but I think could tick up still to to another level. You know, Ezekiel Tovar, uh, another you know good example of a, you know top twenty five prospect coming from from Venezuela. So um, it's you know it's also just a country that teams scout really heavily already. And, you know, there's a really strong youth baseball infrastructure there and, and so many programs, training players. So I, I could see them taking another jump over over the next 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you got Venezuela, up arrow, Cuba, up arrow, Bahamas, maybe it's the sleeper up arrow country, um, Colombia waiting on the next step for them. Um, so those are good ones. Uh, there's definitely a rich uh, baseball culture throughout the Caribbean, throughout um, Central and South America. So it's it's cool to see these teams. It's uh, honestly the one of the best parts about the World Baseball Classic is just seeing the different environments at these home parks in different countries and just getting the feeling that different cultures watch and appreciate baseball in such different ways. I mean, watching Japan this morning be so loud in the Tokyo Dome when, when Team Japan was hitting and then utterly silent when Otani was pitching was just very cool to see. Um, and some of the chants you hear from different crowds just reminds me of, of what you're maybe you see more frequently with European soccer that you just, you don't get at many U S uh, sporting events at all, baseball or otherwise. So I think just seeing how different countries operate is, is very cool. Even off the field. Yeah. I was in Japan for the WBC and I want to say 2013, and being in the stadium there when Japan was playing, it felt like being at a like a college basketball game where there's just all the chanting and cheering and the songs and just the way the crowd was was responding, the atmosphere. It was just like, oh, I feel like I'm at like a like a big time college basketball game right now. Yeah, it's it's cool to see that. I, I wonder why that doesn't really happen with the major American sports. It does seem to be a college-specific thing. Um, you almost have to train the, the crowds to do a lot of these things. And with big league stadiums, big league parks, you just don't really have that. Um, but, yeah, let's move, on to, let's move on to the American Baseball Classic, our hypothetical state versus state event. Um, how would you break this down if you're going to? Because in terms of the draft, it's very simple. We just go, we just look at the talent that comes out of each individual state. But obviously, there are high school players who are born in one state. Maybe you grow up in a different state. Maybe you play high school in one state, and then you commit to college in another state. So first of all, how are you determining which state has the rights to to each player in this hypothetical event? 
Um, and then which states are your favorites? Because, I mean, for me, it feels like the obvious ones would simply be the, the hotbeds of talent, and, and that'd be Florida, California, Texas, and then after that, Georgia, uh, North Carolina. But I'm curious what you think and, and where you think the, the maybe favorites are and where some potential sleepers could be. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you probably should just generally look at where the player grew up or went to high school. So, like, if you have, uh, you know, a college player who goes to Vanderbilt but is from New Jersey, like, yeah, he should be from New Jersey, right? Not (laughs) um, Not from Tennessee. Yeah, not from Tennessee. So I wouldn't do that. Although now now it's a little trickier because you have programs like – IMG Academy or, or some other yeah exactly baseball what, uh, academies what James Wood or Brendan Malo count for Florida or North Carolina or Maryland it's it gets trickier yeah so I'd go James I'd go James Wood with like Maryland so I'd, I'd say he's from Maryland but you know if you're if you're the area scout in Maryland for the Padres like <laughs> you didn't get credit for signing James Wood so um but I would, I would generally say it's like, you know, go with where the player is from. So I think if that's the case, I'm probably going to take, I can't decide really between Florida and California as my favorite. I feel like those two would have to be the one of the states you pick, right? Is there another one you would take? Yeah, I think those two, I mean, Texas has got to be up there too, right? But probably California and Florida have got to be your favorites, both just the the population size, the weather, the, you know, the baseball cultures in in those states for has uh, got to make those teams the, the favorites, I would think. Yeah, at some point in the future, I would like to kind of track down um, potential lineups and rotations for each of these states i I tried to before this podcast but i didn't really know how to do it um economically not knowing how we were um like how we were assigning which state got which player so that'll be something that i want to do in the future but i feel like your top just talent producing states in general are california texas florida georgia north carolina um i'm trying to think who would be outside of that um a lot I of think, the states in yeah. the deep south do a good job. Georgia. I've got to put Georgia up there. Georgia was four for me if I, I didn't mention oh, okay. that. They, they would be like the, the immediate state that comes to mind after the what I view as like the, the elite top three of Florida, California, and Texas. I think Georgia is, is immediately after that grouping. Um, and then North Carolina from a, from a draft perspective is always well regarded, but I think a lot of that comes from just the quantity of – college programs that are solid so you'll get a lot of players from around the area generally maybe not necessarily directly from north carolina so i think in this exercise actually north carolina might um trend down compared to like draft talent i think virginia is is actually a sneaky good state for this exercise there have been a lot of good players that have come out of the virginia beach area Uh, justin verlander came from virginia so he'd be a nice one to, to start your rotation with um I wonder how much Mike Trout can carry New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. Because yeah. there are a number of solid prospects who come out of New Jersey and intend to go to college in, in more southern states. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think if there would be any other states who, who jump out. I'm just scrolling through our our list right now to see if they're... I think Arizona actually has a, a decent amount of, of players come out of the state. That would be a good one. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any other obvious ones that jump out to me in terms of like consistently producing. I, mean, I would say Georgia probably punches above its weight pretty good for mm-hmm. the population size. But again... Like, think about if you could create a team of only players from Georgia or only pl- players only from North Carolina and then put them up against a country with the same population size as them, which is the Dominican Republic, <laughs> and and see how that would go. Because, I mean, it's just incredible well. going back to the Dominican Republic again how how much talent comes out of there relative to the the size of the country yeah i think that's what that's what happens when baseball is is the only show in town right there's a lot of other sports that that people in georgia grow up playing basketball and football are, are mm-hmm. pretty huge in those states obviously the south in general especially the the southeast has just a massive high school football culture um and if you strip that away and baseball is basically the the sport that your country idolizes and loves and everyone plays uh it would make sense if we, if we had a lot more of these elite football players who are coming from the american south who are just playing baseball from a young age i think you'd see quite a bit of a difference in terms of the talent that's coming out yeah i mean looking forward do you see any states or any regions of the country at the amateur level right now that seem like they're becoming a, a bigger source of talent or that teams are putting a, a greater emphasis on scouting, obviously aside from like the, you know, the California, Florida, Texas's of, of the country, some States that might be kind of moving, moving up. There's none that jump out as though this state is really trending up. I think in, in the draft, it, it feels like there's almost more waves of, You'll have a few good years of talent from a certain area. I know out of um, where was Jared Kelnick from a few years ago? He was out of Wisconsin. I would yeah. mix up his states. There was a, a few years where there were just a, a few really good hitters from Wisconsin. Um, Indiana has had a few good years. I don't remember last year the the Upper Midwest was was very strong, and obviously Max Clark coming out of the state this year. Um, I think three years ago was just a really good year for the Northeast. I don't, I don't necessarily think when we get a year like that, it necessarily means that, oh, now this this region or this specific state is is going to be, kind of punching above its previous weight in terms of producing talent. It just feels like, you know, sometimes you have strong years in certain areas and sometimes you don't. But there are those constants that we'd mentioned that, that just always do because of geography, um, and, and the ability to play the sport year round. They're just built-in advantages. I do think it's interesting, though, how teams view pitching specifically from cold-weather states versus southern states and and how maybe it's beneficial to be from a cold-weather state because you're not throwing as often, whereas if you're growing up around Florida or Southern California or even in Georgia near the East Cobb Complex where there's so many events going on year-round and you can just play, 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 play constantly, the added wear and tear specifically for pitchers that puts on you um, certainly has to factor into your your risk profiles for those players. So it's interesting to see how teams treat prospects from different areas differently. But I don't think that 
like we've had a few good years of, of pitching prospects from the Northwest, from the high school ranks, for instance, with McCable uh, and with Noble Meyer and with J.R. Ritchie. Um, so there is a, there is like a, a, a pretty strong culture, I think, of, of player development in that area now, particularly on the pitching side, it seems. It seems like there's a bunch of good pitching factories out there. Um, but in terms of states who are kind of on the rise, I, I don't really feel like there's maybe an obvious one to point to. Well, the weather one is interesting because I agree. I think there's, you know, just some cyclical or even kind of random <clears throat> nature to yeah, it in terms of when when certain states or certain regions of the country happen to have more talent. But I do wonder whether somewhere like New York or New Jersey could could kind of tick up in terms of the major league players uh, or at least draft picks that come out of those states because the, I mean, certainly the population size is there. Like they're both top, uh, certainly New York is like a top five state in terms of just the, the raw number of people there. New Jersey is pretty high up uh, the list. I mean, the, the size of the country geographically is not, or excuse me, of the state geographically is not that large, um, but the the population is is one of the bigger states in in the country. And now we're starting to see more and more. It seems like training facilities and in the, these indoor training facilities that don't completely negate the weather advantage that somewhere like Texas or California or Florida, or obviously, you know, the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, that that those places have, but you have more opportunities to uh, to train and to develop in those facilities. And if you have more players going there and more high level players going there to train, then you can you know you can get together with a lot of the better players in your area train against them compete against them that kind of helps elevate everybody's games and it also seems like there's just more you know more travel going on more travel baseball for players from all over the country so you have players who are from you know the you know colder weather climates uh, you know, especially up in, you know, the Northeast, it seems like who, you know, the Northeast or the Midwest who are traveling to, to the Southeast for, you know, whether it's perfect game or PBR or other events who are pretty regularly seeing top competition from all over the country. They're not just competing against the, you know, the local players in their area. So from that standpoint, I do wonder whether, we'll see an uptick in, you know, from New York or New Jersey or, or maybe some other states too, but especially those those areas where there is a large population where we start to see, you know, more baseball players, more more major leaguers and, and more draft picks coming from those areas. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I thought of two different things while you were talking there. One, that kind of gets into a question that we had asked that I feel like would be a nice way to pivot into that. Um, the second one is you had mentioned a few podcasts ago how you thought in in Latin America and the Dominican Republic specifically there's just much more of a 
a culture around practice, whereas in America we have a culture around playing games constantly. And I do think when you're talking about just different labs that you have up north, different uh, development facilities and training facilities, maybe we get to a point where in those states there's just more of an emphasis on um, very specific player development and training. Even if you're not getting those game reps, maybe there's a way where you can replicate uh, not replicate but you can still get a bunch of beneficial time uh, as a baseball player even if it's not the game reps that maybe there are some pros and cons to doing that that would affect like your your level of of play uh, compared to just playing games every day i think there are a lot of pros and cons that come with focusing on development or focusing on games Um, but i also wanted to get into one question from met's perspective on instagram he he had asked or she had asked do you feel the travel ball influence on baseball has been a good thing? And I think that's a very big question, and there are a ton of different elements to this. Um, it's obviously a massive industry now. I think in general there's not a black and white answer here. I think there are pros and cons, but I wanted to throw that out there and get into that question since you kind of touched on it quite a bit with um, your point about just how common it is to do travel baseball. And if, if you're in the north, that doesn't necessarily mean um, – you can't travel down south and play more often. So kind of throwing a lot at you there, Ben, but take it in any direction you want to go. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast or, I mean, should we do a whole series of episodes on just that question? I think it depends. It's And it depends how you want to define travel ball. So I would exclude things, let's say, let's just say it's travel ball where you're playing for a travel ball team itself and you're going to compete in different events for that team so you would set aside something like like area code games or you're you're basically differentiating travel ball tournaments versus showcase events right yeah so like yeah the showcases where you're going to like east coast pro is a showcase or the area code games is a showcase or you know even the events that let's say perfect game or prep baseball report are putting on like their their national showcase or other regional showcases so that they have I would bucket those into a different category as like you said those are a showcase which is different than playing on a, a travel baseball team um, so I again I, even within that so let's say you're just talking about you're playing for you know the Canes or USA Prime or Texas 12 or Five Star or South Charlotte Panthers whoever whatever travel team um, you know I, I think it can be a, a, a really good thing for players uh, especially players who have you know the opportunity to play at the professional level or who are going to go on to play college baseball because you get the opportunity to go out and, and compete against better competition, play with better competition too. Those, you know, players are going to push you more. Uh, the competition you're going up against is going to test you more and it's going to be better for your development. If you're playing against high caliber players throughout the summer, probably a lot more so than just playing for <clears throat> you know, your high school team and obviously the caliber of competition you're going to face on your high school team is going to be different if you're in Southern California compared to, uh, you know, if you're in Vermont or something, right? So it, it that, that depends too, but I think there's a lot of good things that can, um, you know, come for 
top players for players who have a future in pro ball or at the you know division one college baseball level to play in travel ball now where like you and i think of travel ball where those are like the players we're thinking of right but there's also like i'll see travel ball for things that are like 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 a flyer or something is posted online it's like travel come play for our 8u travel ball team right so like i guess technically that would include that <laughs> that um that part of the travel ball universe too and you know there's no eight or nine year old that needs to play travel baseball like i don't even know what that means like a nine U competitive team like what i don't even know what that even means so there's there's certain ends of that where it gets too extreme and is not really uh not really necessary um you know on the other hand if you know you know there, there are families that will take their kid to you know who you know their kid loves disney or maybe the parent loves Disney, but like, you know, they would say the kid lo- really loves Disney and they, the whole family loves it and, and they want to go there two, three, four times a year. You know, if, if a family wants to spend their money that way for a summer with, with a kid, like, I don't know, I don't like begrudge a family for choosing to spend their money that way as opposed to pouring a lot of money into Um, you know, having, you know, if, if their kid wants to play baseball and travel around the country doing that, then, you know, I'm not going to begrudge anybody for choosing to spend their money that way either. But, um, but it's, you know, it's obviously different when we're, you know, the different age groups and competition levels that we're talking about. Yeah. I think you hit on a lot of things that, that I'd agree with there. I think, the best way I would be able to answer it is just like, I think it it's about balance, right? There are a lot of positives you can get from travel baseball. There are a lot of developmental advantages you can get from baseball. I think you do get better when you're playing better competition. And, and for a lot of players around the country, doing that through travel ball is really the best way. There are a lot of players who just aren't going to be challenged uh, against the high school competition that they're playing against routinely. Um, just depending on where you're at. So that offers you the ability to just see better competition, play better competition. I mean, I only did travel ball one year when I was younger, but it, it was one of the most fun experiences I had when I actually played. Now, at the same time, I remember our entire team was, was putting Icy Hot on our arms and popping ibuprofen <laughs> constantly because, I mean, everyone pitches on the team, basically, because we had a pretty small roster at that point. It's maybe a little different than... A lot of the elite travel ball teams that, that we go watch and see pretty frequently, Ben. But I think you just need to do it wisely. You need to realize that playing year-round is probably not a beneficial thing for a teenager, regardless of the position, and especially if you're a pitcher. So making sure you're not getting into scenarios where you're, you're developing overuse injuries um, and being smart about which events you're going to realizing what what your goals are and not just going to travel ball events because you want to get your numbers out there when you're 12 years old and you want to compete with whatever the top velocities or performance data is for other 12 year olds in the country i think that's where it goes a little bit too far um but if you want to play at the next level there's a reason that a lot of college coaches go to these events it's because they can see a 
a high concentration of talented players in one area. So I understand the, the incentives to go there, but I think everything you said about just be, being wary of it at very young ages um, and trying to protect yourself from, from injuries and just understanding what a balanced schedule should be. Um, you should be able to take advantage of the travel ball system without becoming maybe a victim of, of what it's become. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, where it gets dicey is the, as far as overuse is the kind of the end of the tournaments too. Right. So like you'll have pool play and, and they'll try to, you know, you'll have like a four day tournament and you know, there, there's a reason, you know, major league, you know, even bullpen guys like the teams don't like to throw them on back-to-back days a lot and there's a lot of times where you especially get into like the playoff run in in one of these tournaments and by the end of it you're like uh this kid should not be pitching in this tournament like he just pitched yesterday or he just threw a whole lot of pitches Mm -hmm. a few days ago and like this is a this this coach should know better than to be throwing this player now sometimes there's also things like you know you'll you'll be at a you know a pitcher will pitch in a showcase one day and then you know the next day or a couple days later he'll go out and he'll be pitching in a travel ball game and it's like well he didn't technically pitch or like violate if you know if you're going by like the pitch smart rules mm-hmm. for a tournament well he didn't technically violate any rules or anything like that because it's a different event so like it wouldn't count if you're just yeah. looking at that tournament but it all like you, you know your arm doesn't care <laughs> like if it's if if well you know whether it's the same tournament or, or a different one so that's where you can see some you know overuse injuries as well so and it's also again there's so many different teams and so many different coaches out there so the quality of what you're getting can vary very very widely from program to program or or even team to team within a program yeah i think those are good points i mean for most of the pitchers that that we're watching from a draft perspective i feel like they're at such a level that they get very good guidance, whether that's via advisors or through scouts or through coaches. Um, and they understand the risks pretty pretty consistently and understand arm care and, and how many pitches they're throwing and know how to shut it down. But I do think once you're kind of outside of that elite pitching talent in the country, when you're looking at players who, who maybe aren't going to be pro baseball players, but maybe can play in college and, and increase their stock once they get to college... I, it would not be surprising at all if, if there was less um, there was less of a strict routine or a regimen or just less less strict about following how many pitches you're throwing. And I would just say that like none of these none of these travel ball championships are as important as, as your your arm health at the end of the day. Uh, like in the moment, it might seem like this is the most important thing that 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 you're doing, or you, you just have to win this tournament, but really no one no one cares at the end of the day and, and keeping your arm healthy should be the goal um and making sure that you are following i think pitch smart is, is probably the best program available to try and prevent 
uh, overuse injuries and, and, and just throwing too frequently. So trying to enforce that on, on your own kids and, and on yourself as a pitcher is super important because like you said, going from event to event, there's no guarantee that they're going to be enforced in the way that they need to. Certain programs probably aren't enforcing it in the way they need to and certain events themselves probably aren't enforcing it. So just being on top of that um, on your own to make sure that you're not reliant on other people to take care of your arm um, should be should be pretty important. You want to get into more questions here, Ben? Yeah, what, uh, what else we got here? We've got one question from Jacob Larson on Twitter who has a raised question. And he asks, between... Oslivas Basave, Curtis Mead, Junior Caminero, and Ronnie Simone, who has the highest ceiling of the quartet, uh, and who has been the biggest surprise return from a trade? So I'll throw this one at you. I mean, for me, these questions are a little tough because, I mean, we have a list of, of our, our top 30 rays, and I think that is probably the best way to point you to in terms of ceiling. Like, Curtis Mead seems to be in a, at a different tier than some of these other players. But if you have any thoughts on any, any of these players or the question at large, go ahead. Yeah, I would say definitely Curtis Mead on this one position to be determined, but just as far as the pure offensive ability, both hitting ability and power, um, I don't think anybody else in that group can, can match him. So um, definitely again, defensive question marks on him might ultimately be a first baseman but he also seems like he has the bat that could fit it first base too i mean it's well above average uh or i'd probably say just plus power um with him uh just plus power right um but uh yeah that's all um but you know you know i think the hitting ability could end up being well above average with him so um not bringing a lot to the table defensively but uh offensively just a very uh complete hitter in terms of the the pure hitting ability and power so he'd he'd probably also be what well, was part of the i think the part of the question was like who was the best trade uh or maybe yeah, i think biggest, it was biggest surprise return from the trade. yeah because he was i mean at the time you know he had some profile as the uh, you know an international signing from the phillies coming out of Australia, but like it wasn't like he was, you know, some super highly ranked guy in the Philly system at the time. So he'd probably fit that one too. Uh, but I think I think Junior Caminero also was a really good job of scouting on the pro side by the Rays because he was, you know, the Guardians signed him out of the Dominican Republic. Uh, I want to say it was like seventy grand, something like that. It was not a big dollar signing but i actually remember being at the well i guess it was the indians complex at the time he after he signs and some of the guys there were like yeah like keep an eye on junior caminero like he's been really good so far obviously he hadn't you know debuted in, in pro ball yet but he'd been training there and uh showing a lot of offensive promise and uh you know another uh yet another really good trade by by the raids and good job of identifying um, players by their by their pro scouting department. Yeah, thank you for that question, Jacob. We've got an email from Bob Tillett, and shout out to everyone who's sending us emails. Much appreciate that. He asks, are there any D3, D2, NAIA prospects to watch for 
in the draft this year besides Miak legend Kiefer Lord, who it sounds like Kiefer Lord, who's now pitching for Washington, it would not count for this answer, has been very good early this season. He's trending up on boards. Um, I actually asked a, a scout about this question prior to the podcast. There was no obvious name at, at the D2 level that I'd heard about um, at this point. One name who has performed um, very early on is Aaron Munson, who's a right-hander out of Angelo State in Texas. He was fascinating to me. He, he's been one of the better performers at the D2 level. 37 strikeouts, 7 walks in his first 30 innings this year. Um, probably one of the most dominant pitchers overall at that level. He's a shorter righty, listed at about 5'10". It has solid stuff, 90-94 with the fastball, mostly sitting in that 91-92 mile per hour range. And I thought he had good feel to spin a breaking ball as well. So maybe he's a guy who will eventually rank on the BA 500. I haven't ter- heard a ton about him specifically from scouts, but he's certainly a name that I'll be asking about, um, just given the stuff he's shown, given how the fastball seems to play with the swings and misses that he's getting on that pitch and the performance. I mean, uh, there are always guys who are going to pop up in terms of of performance, and if you have the stuff to back it up, that very quickly can put you on the radar, especially when we're ranking 500 draft prospects. So I would say at this point, I don't know of any like prominent high-end guy, but since you're asking this question, Bob, I don't know that you necessarily are hunting the the top prospects in the class. You seem like much more of a, a deep sleeper prospect kind of junkie. So Aaron Munson would be a name that I think would, would be one that maybe fits this for you and that you can look into. Um, but thank you for the question. We've got another email from Jacob Dininger. He says, Hi, Ben and Carlos. Enjoying the podcast. My favorite in the BA family. Uh, in terms of podcasts, I figured that you guys would be the best to ask the following question. What's the difference between Gunnar Henderson and Wes Kath? Not being cheeky here. I see the same body, same swing, same defensive profile. I saw Gunnar play a bunch in person in 2021 before he made the jump in 2022. In 2021, Gunnar was striking out too much, sloppy at shortstop, but solid at third base, and could not hit lefties. Uh, He still can't. Saw a ton of West in person in 2022. West was a high school shortstop, but seems to be at third base. He was striking out too much and seemed to have a real problem seeing the ball slash spin in night games. I'm not a scout, so what am I missing? Could West make the jump to a top 100 prospect in 2023 or 2024? Thanks for your time and expertise. Um, very detailed question here. Ben, I'll throw it to you first. I Immediately when I saw this email, I pulled both of these guys up on Synergy to see. Uh, what what Jacob was referencing in the swing, and I have some thoughts, but I'm curious what your thoughts would be on this uh, overall. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of things I think would have to break right for um, you know for Westcath to turn into that type of player. I mean, I think just Gunnar Henderson. You know, if, if you look back at what he did in 2021. Um, you know, you know, he was 20 years old, uh, you know, or at least his first full season coming out of high school and, you know, between high A and, uh, and low A, I think overall was just more, more productive as a hitter compared to West Cath. Um, you know, the strikeout rate, you know, the, the strikeout rate was higher. Uh, or, or was high on the higher end, certainly with uh, Gunnar Henderson at that level. Um, but, and, and it's something that he was able to improve. So maybe 
that happens with with West Cath, but I I don't know that the the same feel for hitting or, or feel for the barrel is there with Cath compared to what what Gunnar Henderson was was showing when um, you know when he was at the at the A ball level. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Gunnar Henderson just has a, a much higher baseline of athleticism as well compared to West Cath. I mean, they both might be third baseman eventually. Um, it sounds like there are some mixed reports on West Cath's Cath's defensive ability, but I think from a hitting perspective, what jumped out to me immediately when just comparing these two um, one after another over video uh, was just the bat speed that Gunnar has. It's It's quite a bit better bat speed then Kath, I think he does a much better job getting on plane uh, with the baseball. The swing is much more compact. I thought Kath has a tendency to get a little bit long. There's a little bit more movement um, with his hands in his load phase of the swing. I thought that led to some timing issues. And when you combine that with pitch recognition questions, um, I just kind of wonder how often he's going to be on time with, with good velocity and good breaking balls. The strikeouts are a concern now. The length of the swing is a concern. So I just thought I just thought Gunner's swing and bat speed and pitch recognition was pretty significantly a, a step ahead, and, and that's where I think a lot of the difference is between these two. Um, but I do think that, that Gunner certainly took a step forward from his expectations, I guess, once he was drafted, at least externally. Maybe maybe the Orioles always knew this was the guy he, he could be. Um, so there's a chance that, that Kath adds some more bat speed and cuts down those strikeouts but i even think defensively too gunner henderson just athletically seems to be a lot more impressive so hopefully that sheds some light on on some of the differences that that we see uh with these two players right now i wouldn't write off west west cath entirely but i think there's some there's some questions for sure about how he does it in the batter's box anything you want to add to that man no i think that's well said cool uh, those are all the questions that we had for today. Uh, again, if you guys have any and you want to send them to us, the email is futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. Um, as always, Ben is at Ben Badler on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. Um, so you can you can find us at all those places and send us comments, questions, concerns, feedback uh, there as well. Uh, anything you want to plug before we get out of here, Ben, or any last uh, final remarks? Working on our our 2025 rankings coming up, so um, starting to plan out some summer travel already. So looking forward to uh, not just not just this year's draft, but uh, getting getting going on the next couple of years drafts too. Absolutely, and for me, uh, headed down to North Carolina this weekend to watch some college baseball. Hopefully, see Walker Jenkins uh, the following week near the coast of North Carolina. That'll be great. To see, it sounds like he's been pretty electric so far. Good early early feedback on Walker from the scouting community. Not that that's a surprise. Um, he is a monster. Um, so just more more notes on the class for me. We got a 2023 draft update in the works right now. We'll be expanding to the top 300 prospects in the class very soon. Expect a lot of movement on that board from just early returns from the college season. Some high school players who are showing improved stuff popping up. Um, it's that time of year. There's a lot of a lot of motion on the board, a lot of movement, a lot of action. Um, we've got baseball in college. We've got high school baseball. We've got the World Baseball Classic. We've got spring training. Uh, it's all firing here. We've got a lot of content on BaseballAmerica.com to cover it. And today, if you're a fantasy player, 
Jeff and Dylan also dropped their Dynasty Top 600. So if you didn't think the BA500 was deep enough, we've got a Dynasty 600 for you to check out. Definitely do that. Um, And thank you guys for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting Baseball America if you're a member. If you're not a member, maybe consider it. Uh, If you listen to an hour and 40 minutes of me and Ben talking prospects, you would definitely get a lot from a BA subscription as well. So thank you guys for listening. For Ben, I'm Carlos. See you next time, everybody.